Las Vegas, it's where I am. This is Zandra Pollard. Today my guests are Marshall Todd, co-creator, executive producer, and writer of the hit series, Woke. Also, my mental health professional is Dr. Lawrence Jackson. Thank you guys for being on the show. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So I want to talk about the show Woke. Okay. But with Woke, I want people to be woke (laughs) in therapy. Yes. Because therapy is so important. This is. And part of the process of unraveling things is writing, which is why I invited you on the show. So first, tell us about your show, and then we'll, we'll go a little bit further. Okay, Woke is a TV show about a comic strip artist uh, who is um, as non-threatening in the middle of the road as you can get and still be black. Uh, he, he sees what's going on in the world, and he doesn't think it's going to touch him. And one day, the cops in San Francisco whip his ass, and um, after that, he has post-traumatic stress syndrome and um, he ends up seeing cartoons. His own cartoon characters start talking to him. Um, and when they speak to him, it's to sort of uh, get him in, 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 into trouble and have him sort of speak up and be the black man he should have been before um, the beatdown happened. Put it that way. So, but when I, when I saw the first episode, mm-hmm. he was about to hit success, right? He was about to make it big as this artist. And then he has a stapler and he's stapling his paper to advertise. And the police think it's a weapon. He was, he was about to become successful um, denying a part of himself. So, right. so he, he was about to become successful basically living a lot. Right. Um, and the actual incident, actually, in my, my co-writer is, is a guy named Keith Knight. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy on the show is the fictionalized version of Pete Knight. Okay, the staple incident actually happened to him. Um, oh, true story. The, the real Pete Knight is, is, is woke as hell. Uh, so he didn't need, you know, the asshole to bring him to, you know, see the light. Uh-huh. But he was putting up flyers and the cops jumped on him and um, cuffed him, put him on the ground. Yeah, it was ugly. So that, that became sort of the anchor for our show. Okay. And it was so, you got a lot of publicity for it because... You wrote this and it aired before um, the unfortunate incident with George Floyd. What, what's crazy about, about that, we, we shot the series in January and February of this year. Okay. There was a day where I was on set and I actually looked at Keith and I said, I don't know, man, maybe, maybe by the time the show comes out, people will have forgotten the whole, you know, cat thing, kneeling, police brutality. Maybe this... Maybe we're sort of talking about something that's going to be sort of passe mm-hmm. by the time it comes out. And Keith looked at me and said, quote, by the time our show comes out, they're going to kill three, four more people. Yeah. Don't you worry. This is evergreen. This will always be relevant. Yeah. And not two months later, George Floyd happened. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's always happening. It's always relevant. Yeah. I was, you know, it's so funny because I went to school. I went to college late in life after kids. And I'm in class, and they're talking about the Rodney King riots. (laughs) I was there. So what we were learning, or what they were learning, was that it was the first time that it had been caught on video. Because, of course, this has happened forever. 
Uh, but Will Smith said something to the effect of, it, "It's not, it's not the first time it's happened. It's just the first time it's getting taped." Right. And, and, and all have phones, phones now, so all this is sort of coming out. Right. All getting taped. So you know, it's not that it's happening more. It's that we're, we're seeing it now for what for, for what it is. Yeah, that's so very true. So let's get back to you. Okay. How did you become a writer? Did you start writing as a kid? When yeah. did you did? How old were you? Uh, six, seven. Oh, okay. But you know, when you're a kid, you don't know it, it's a job that someone can pay you for it one day. Um, it, it, it's a hobby. Mm-hmm. I wrote short stories in, in my little notebooks. Um, I had a friend with a movie camera when I was a kid, and we used to write new movies, shoot them. Um, and then I realized that film was a, you know, a major in college. Uh, you could actually be a filmmaker and it would pay you for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to Howard. And, and, and I, I wanted to be a director. I never really wanted to be a writer. Okay. Um, but at Howard, my teachers were like, you know, you're, you're a very good writer. And I used to say, I, I don't, you know, I read stories about screenwriters. I don't want to do that at, for a living. Um, and then I came out here, bounced around for a few years, and sold the script. And that, that was that. Now, you're from the South somewhere. Born in North Carolina. Okay. But my parents were, were uh, in the military. So I lived in North Carolina, Alabama, Georgia. I went to school in Germany, high school in Germany. Okay. Uh, and then went to college at Howard. Okay. Our family lived in Germany when I was very young. Yeah, we thought it was home. We came here and said, Nobody was paying attention to us. <laughs> and we wanted to go home. My mother said, this is your home. But anyway, so you started doing some comedic writing for Barbershop. Uh, okay, no. I, I, How did, what was your involvement with Barbershop? The first script I ever wrote was, was a drama. Okay. What happened was, I never, with the whole comedy thing, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a heist movie I wrote. But people kept reading the script going, hey, man, this is kind of funny. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't really mean it to be funny. I mean, life has humor in it, so it's sort of life humor. It's not jokes. Um, so someone at MGM, Barbershop, needed a rewrite. And Ice Cube was sort of floating around the project, and they hired me to rewrite it. So I, I did a rewrite. And after I rewrote it, Ice Cube signed on to do the film, and then... Just like that, I was involved. Nice. Yeah. So you were kind of the reason Ice Cube got involved. Uh, as it was told to me, yes. Because it was better. He did not like. <laughs> so in my draft, he was like, "Okay, cool." What's odd is that's the second time when I first my first time I ever worked on. I was a PA on a movie called Glass Shield. Ice Cube was the star. Oh, oh yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. So then Barbershop, Ice Cube was the star. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We. I have a connection with with, uh, with Cube. Cool, you know, who's also connected with Cube? Not me. <laughs> Ooh. But our good friend, Paula J. Parker. Uh, yeah. I spoke to her this morning. She's going to do the show next month. Awesome. She disappeared for a while. Yeah, well, you know, she has a show called Family Time. And then uh, I think they're bringing the Proud family back. Wow. That would be awesome. Wow, okay. Yeah. That was a good show. That was a good show. Very good show. So, Dr. Jackson, I think we have to bring you into the conversation. Let's do it. Let's do it. So, I know you're a professor here at UNLV, and you also have your own private practice. 
Uh-huh. You concentrate on marriage, couples, marriage, and family therapy. Yes, yes, that's me. Okay, so tell us what you do at the university and then also about your private practice. So, yeah, I am a, currently an assistant professor um, in the couple and family therapy program at UNLV within the School of Medicine. Um, and so some of those responsibilities involve me teaching undergrad classes, master classes. We have a master level um, graduate program for clinicians who want to pursue a degree in couple and family therapy and be couple and family therapists one day. And so my primary job is to prepare them, get them ready. Get their, get the, give them the training, give them the supervision needed, um, and these just skills and expertise to get them into the world, right? Yes. In whatever state that they're working in, then for them to continue to flourish. Um, outside of that role within the university, I do have a private practice um, where I specialize working with diverse couples and families and individuals as well. Um, I'm really passionate in being a person of color, um, believing that as a person of color, having that isomorphic process, a parallel process from a professor to a clinician to the community, I like that pipeline. Okay. And so I wanted to be instrumental part of that pipeline, being a person of color, seeking and working with other people of color as well. Awesome. Well, um, let us know what insurances do you take? I currently don't take any insurances right now. It's cash pay. Just cash pay. Yeah, my private practice is pretty small because of um, course of working full time at UNLV. Um, however, what I try to do to still connect with the community is I am active on social media. Okay. I'm on Instagram and Facebook at the Black Male Therapist. I do something what I like to call Black Therapy Fridays, and kind of like Black Friday is to you know for companies starting the red to get back to the black. Um, I use Black Therapy Fridays as an opportunity to connect with the community. And if they're struggling during a week, give them something that can hopefully aid them to get them back to their, their okay and normal functioning. And so I utilize that platform, that tool to just to connect. I, I, I ask the community questions. I ask my followers questions. What things do you want to know about? Because um, first, there's a lot of people, this is the first time hearing about therapy or being comfortable about it or seeing somebody of color having yes. conversation about therapy. We're trying to break that stigma. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's something I'm extremely, I call it getting a piece of that pie, promoting mental health, expiring youth and empowering others. Like that's that's what all um, Black Therapy Fridays is about. That's all that my platform is about. Um, I also have a clothing line where I promote mental health awareness through that as well. Oh, wonderful. Just doing whatever you can to just, just break that stigma and change right. the narrative, especially for, for uh, individuals of color, for sure. So now let's incorporate um, what we're talking about being woke in therapy and the writing process. Absolutely. Doctor, how can we manage our emotions and goals through writing? I view myself as a social constructionist. And pretty much what I mean by that is that I believe that we as humans, we shape our realities um, or we say our perceptions shape our realities in a way that we communicate those perceptions is through the use of language. So there's so much power in language. Language in a lot of cases shapes our reality. The way that we communicate things, we're communicating a reality that we probably have bought into. And so writing within itself can help uh, co-construct different realities that are more fitting, that are more healthy, that are more powerful for, for clients. And so I view um, one of the one of the main types of therapies that and models that I use is narrative narrative family therapy. And pretty much narrative family therapy is taking into consideration that we we develop and create problems, right? And we keep them and maintain those problems through our use of language. And so if we change our language, 
we change the outlook on a problem and we change our realities and our solutions as well. And so utilizing that way of storytelling and how we communicate what's going on with us, what's going wrong with us, what's going right with us, what's healthy for us, unhealthy for us, through that use of language and storytelling and, and co-constructing with my clients a different narrative that better fits their situations, that better fits in circumstances, and then buying into that process and changing their realities. So that's why Ayanla says you have the power to create your story. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Marshall, what can we expect for Woke? Is there a second season? Uh, <laughs> we're getting to that right now. Okay. We've already pitched our take on season two to, to, to the network. And and they love it, uh, and I think season two will will, will deal with uh, the post George Floyd world, uh, which in many spaces it's it's overwoke, it's too woke. Um, for instance, we, we we didn't black people didn't ask for realtors to stop calling a master bedroom master bedroom. Uh, okay, black people didn't ask for them to stop showing the Golden Girls episode where they're in blackface. All we want to have is the cops not with our ass. Uh, so, so it, it, it's the show will get into sort of that how it's been overcorrected, um, and, and how in a lot of cases, uh, major corporations have, has co opted sort of the movement. They're they're profiting from woke. Um, so the issue is, can you be woke and and make money from it and it be pure, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, man. But we're we're close. Didn't Nike do that with Kellen Kaepernick? Uh, I would say yes. Am I wrong? No, no. Cap used his platform to get a message out that turned out to be a hundred percent correct. After the fact, like now, when you have like um, who's the, the the Kardashian who had a Pepsi commercial where she's in the middle of a, of, of a protest and, and and the guy gives her a Pepsi. Oh, I didn't see that one. That kind of stuff. Um, uh, when we were promoting the show, uh, Disney and Hulu, to their credit, were very aware of what was going on in the world. And they came to us and they said, we know you're angry. We know you want to say something. Whatever you want to say, we'll finance it. Right? We'll back it. And our director looked at them and said, thank you. But if we, if we do that, then anything we say for it to have that Disney logo on it, we'll sort of, sort of take take something away from it. So we sort of uh, went off on our own and did our individual thing. Oh. But but yeah, but but again, to their credit, they were down. But it just didn't seem it, it, it wouldn't have played well. Okay. Well, <laughs> you got me dumbfounded here. <laughs> <laughs> but my next question was just, or not my next question, but. My next comment was that I really liked the relationship of the three guys, the roommates. Yeah. Yeah, that, that gives the comedic relief. And of, of course, J.B. Smooth is hilarious as the pin. Very funny guy, man. And, and it's effortless. Just everything he says. Well, you know, I love him on um, I call Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> I love that show. Yeah, I always thought that relationship, he was too scared to kick him out. And they just became friends eventually. <laughs> he was too afraid to go, you gotta go. But then he also would like relied on his perspective for a lot of things. Yeah, oh yeah. So anyway, I know you're working on a movie. Is that right? Me? Yeah. 
no. No, you were telling me about a movie. Okay, this is the tie-in. Mm-hmm. When we spoke on the phone, you were telling me about a movie you did. And it went to like the very last. Oh. <laughs> ready to, like you were popping champagne bottles and partying. And then something happened. It didn't go through production. Did that make you go crazy? Uh, yes. The story I told you was about a movie I had put in 10 years on. Um, we finally got a green light. It was ready to go. And then the actor got arrested for impersonating a police officer. Oh, in, of our green light. And by Monday morning, the studio pulled the plug on the movie. Um, so I, I think that's when I had my little um, mental episode. I, I call it a, a nervous breakdown in slow motion. Mm-hmm. Because I, I got so caught up in the years. It took me to get it to where it, it, it was and how it was gone. that it took me a minute to sort of recover. It took me uh, three, four years to recover. And, and people have movies fall through every day. And it's all relative. Yeah, but this was like, you know, you're getting to, it's like, I graduated school. This is my big break. You know, I'm about to be famous or successful writer. And then, so did you seek therapy or you dealt with it yourself? Did you write more? What did you do? I, I, I should have, I probably should have talked to someone um, because something was wrong. Those few years, I, I didn't write. Um, and so something was wrong. But the irony is, I wrote a pilot script called Benefits of Being Struck by Lightning about a black man who's in the middle of a nervous breakdown, but he won't get therapy. So what happens is his life comes apart around him. But he's like, I'll walk this off. Well, while he's walking it off, he's losing everything. So that sample script led to the job at ABC with Barlow Davis, and that led to Woke. Okay. So the thing I wrote for my own peace of mind, my own sort of kind of therapy, mm-hmm. ended up getting me, you know, getting me here. No, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that as well, because I think sometimes we, we, I like to call it tending to the need of the feeling and not of the thought, right? And so what I mean by that is sometimes we overanalyze, we figure out like we, there's a linear process to our pain that we're feeling, right? And so just tilling to that feeling. Um, it's like when you're hungry, you feel it first, then you think it, right? And it's the exact same way. We sometimes we struggle as as human beings to just tend to our feeling, right, and sit with discomfort. Yeah, and I think that's the process. But isn't it like with men, they feel like they have to have this strength, and you know, aren't they more reluctant to get therapy? Oh yeah, conditioning. You got to think about we. You got to think about how how we do it as early as as kids, right? Imagine we had twins, or I had twins. One was a, one was maybe a social constructed boy and girl, right? My my girl falls in the playground. I'm gonna pick her up. I'm gonna let her feel her emotions. I'm gonna support her through the process. My son falls. I'm be like, go play. The less you, the more you play, the less you feel, right? Yeah. And so even from a young age, we socialize men to not have less emotions to show and exhibit them less right because the thing is we all have the same emotions if anything men struggle with identifying those emotions with learning how to process and heal from those emotions but nevertheless we 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 actually have created a society where we have conditioned over years and years for men to be to less to to exhibit them to their emotions less and deal with them and tend to them yeah i agree um i gotta be honest though i i Something was wrong, and, and I kind of knew it was wrong in the back of my head, but I think black people normalize their pain so much 
Mm. I didn't know something was going on until after I got through. As to where I, I, I I'm like I should I should talk to somebody. But it, it, while I was in it, I, I was being strong. Right? I, I got to keep it moving. I can't be broke, broken because as a black man, I got so much other stuff I got to deal with. How dare I be broken? Uh, but <clears throat> fact is, that's a that's a stigma. That's that's something that keeps us from getting the help we need. Uh, so yeah, yeah, it 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 that stigma should be removed. And you know, Doctor Jackson is is like it's so hard for people if they don't have Medicaid. Therapy can be expensive. And for those who have Medicaid, they don't even take advantage because they're so worried about the stigma. Absolutely. And it's like, do you understand if you could afford it that you'd be going, I'd be going every day. Huh, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, 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 I say on my platform all the time, I, I don't think therapy, um, access to therapy is the challenge. Right. I think what the challenge is, is to get the type of therapy that you believe is going to be the most impactful become challenging. Right. When you want to find one, when you want to find a black male therapist that specializes in couple and family, those type of things makes it more challenging. Right. Um, but even that being said, there's times when I, I work with pro bono clients. Right. And so if I see a need there. And I had the ex I had the ability to do so. You know, I think a lot of us therapists, we care about helping, we care about healing, right? And and we will attend to that. Um, but I think it is a stigma there about, you know, you know, whether I grew up in the South as well, and so you pray about it. You don't you don't go to therapy, everything stays in the house. You yeah. pray about it, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Did you did you ask God, you know what I'm saying? And 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 and, and, and even I remember going through school and my family members looking at me like, What you doing? What that mean? You know, you gonna read people's minds? <laughs> you ain't you ain't all knowing. That's ain't your job. That's not your role, right? Oh my um, god! And, and, and it really helped me to recognize that one of the reasons why I got in therapy is because I was at a time where I my senior year of high school I lost my best friend. Okay. And and right before I got to college, I went to I, I see you went to Howard. I went to Xavier in New Orleans, so HBCUs for sure. Um, but right before I went to college, my parents were like, "Oh, he's struggling. He's really struggling. We don't know what to do, right? We've been praying with him, but he's still struggling." And so they they found me a therapist. It was a black therapist at that. And while I was only able to go for three or four months. And even then, I think the other thing about therapy is that sometimes you can go for a short amount of time and the benefits of therapy are not immediate. Okay. Some things, sometimes therapy can be beneficial in that moment, but the really the, the big bang that you're looking for happens two years later. Sometimes people are not ready for therapy. Therapy is a lot of work. It's about it's, 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 it's to me. It's like working out. You know, you got to do it consistent. You got to put no pain, no gain. Exact mm-hmm. same way with therapy. You got to invest in that process. You got to really be intentional about doing what you need to do to make yourself better. I tell my clients all the time. I can I can lead you to the water. I can't make you drink it. I can throw it in your face. I can show you where it's at. But at the end of the day, I only see you once a week. So I'm married. Do I start with me or do I start with us? Ah, yeah. I recommend starting with you. Yeah. Right. And the reason being is because I, I think we developed a, a narrative within our society that unfortunately is like tip for tat. You think about marriage doing 50, 50, right. Instead of a hundred, a hundred. And so it's actually what we're creating. Like, you know, if, if I'm in therapy, if, you, if we're not going to prove unless you do something right. In actuality, therapy's not going to prove to both of y'all doing something for yourself. That's going to benefit the relationship as a whole. 
right? And so one of the things I really appreciate about my training as a systems thinker is that I look at the relationship as there's two people in a room. I don't look at just one relationship. I look at the relationship that one perception of the relationship, the other perception of the relationship and the relationship as a whole. So there's three relationships happening, right? And those things got to get aligned. And the way that that comes aligned is that both partners are working to better themselves for the benefit of the relationship. But see, when I am... When I imagine going into therapy with my husband, mm-hmm. I'm thinking either him or I want to feel like the therapist is going to be on my side and I'm a win. Yeah, yeah. But you can't do that. Absolutely. I think I think there's times when when when, when stuff like that's acceptable, right? What I mean by that is I, I do my best to to validate each of my clients' experience, right? Because at the end of the day. That's that's their truth. I can't say, oh, that absolutely didn't happen. Right. That's their experience. That's what's going on with them. And if I were to if I were to discount that or minimize that, how different would I be from anybody else in society, especially the people of color? We're so used to our experiences being minimized, and, and, and we just want to be heard in a lot of cases, right? Intended to. And so, as a therapist, I got to do my very best to to empathize with and validate their experience. And use that as opportunity to buy into the process to then share them different ideas, right? Like, hey, I, I get that. I get your pain. Mm-hmm. I feel your pain. I'm wondering if we try this, will it alleviate some of that, right? But if I were to say, oh, you're good. I want to just try this. Yeah. It, that, 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 that little bit of validation, a little bit of empathy allows them to buy into the process, right? Buy into like, yo, maybe you get me. Right? I don't believe one therapy is not a one size fits all. You have to tailor that approach to everyone's experience. And I think that's something you have to work on doing as a therapist, right? right. Something that has to be a priority to, to be able to touch people and to help them heal through some of their, their the most vulnerable things, right? If you, if you don't feel comfortable with your therapist, you don't have that connection, you're not going to be vulnerable. If you're not going to be vulnerable, you're not going to get the most out of the experience. And then try another one. Yep, yep. It's not a one-stop shop. Keep going till you find that fit. Absolutely. I think it's all about the catalyst of therapy is connection. Yeah. I I tell my clients all the time, if we can't connect, you can't even begin to be born with me. You can't even begin to let me know what's going on, right? Whether it's good or bad, whether it's healthy or unhealthy. If if you're saying, hey, doc, this ain't working for me this week. If I don't know that, I might be continuing to do something that be hindering your ability to grow. Right. And so I'm really big on being authentic and being genuine in my therapy practice because I think that that's the catalyst to growth in a therapy room. That's awesome. You know, I have one minute left and I want you guys to give your um, social media handles or whatever information you want our 91.5 listeners to know. Uh, On Instagram, uh, it's Hexchief at Instagram, H-E-X-C-H-I-E-F. Uh, on Instagram, I'm at the Black Male Therapist. On Facebook, it's the Black Male Therapist LLC. On Twitter, it's Black Therapy Fry F R I, like Black Therapy Friday. Also, the website www.theblackmaletherapist.com. Um, we can also find my social media outlets and also see some of the uh, apparel uh, and merchandise I sell relating to promoting mental health awareness. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for coming on. It's where I am. I appreciate it. Thank you, Marshall, for sharing your world. And thank you, Dr. Jackson, for explaining a few things. We'll see you next month, second Saturday of the month at 8.30 a.m. Sandra Bullard, it's where I am.